Hey, good morning. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Had a great weekend with all the men and a men's conference. Great time in the trivia, learning how much some guys know and how little some other guys know. <laughs> but it was a, definitely a great time together in fellowship and in the Word. So hey, you're there in Matthew 5. Let's just go ahead and pray and we'll dive right in. Uh, so Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Thank you for, Lord, the blessings of being able to gather together, Lord, to know we're not the only one in this journey, Lord. We're not the only one trying to hear from you and follow you throughout our daily lives, God. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of fellowship and for the body of Christ that you have created, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you fill each of us afresh uh, and anew, Lord. Uh, Lord, for those who are hurting, for those who have received uh, bad news this week or this weekend, we ask that you would encourage them and that you'd comfort them, Lord. And for those of us, Lord, perhaps are going through great seasons and the highs of life, Lord, help us to not forget about you or get lost in all of the blessings, Lord. Uh, but we come to you now and we come to your word. We ask that you would bless it and that our hearts would be that good soil, God. So we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll just get through uh, verses 1 through 5 this morning. It reads, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Here Jesus begins one of his most famous sermons and it's difficult uh, to teach a teaching that Jesus taught. It's pretty difficult to do it, but we'll do our best to unpack the beginning of this sermon. We see in verse 1 that the multitudes were gathering around him. If you follow along in chapter 4, end of chapter 4, verse 24 and 25, we see that all of Syria, people were gathering from Syria. And then in verse 25, we see that multitudes followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. These great multitudes, thousands and thousands of people, they come to follow Jesus and to hear from him. Seeing the miracles, hearing about the miracles, about this teacher and preacher, they all gather to him and now Jesus puts himself in the right position so that more and more people can hear him and so that more and more people can see him by placing himself higher up on the hill. And oftentimes, just a little practical lesson here, oftentimes if we want to hear from Jesus, we will have to go uphill. If you truly want to hear from the Lord, you're going to have to go against the current. So often we're tempted to just take the path of least resistance and when we take the path of least resistance, it rarely ends with Jesus being there. 
I encourage you to labor to enter into that rest, to set aside time and to do the hard work of getting alone with Jesus. He then sits down, which would be common for teachers in this culture. It's opposite of our culture. Here we have the teacher standing up and the students sitting down. In this culture, it'd be the opposite. All of the students would be standing up and the teacher would sit down. And Jesus had several different sized groups following him, different groups of disciples. We see the great multitudes here. We later on hear about the 70 that was following him, the 12 disciples that we know are the famous 12 disciples. And then there's three special disciples that would really be along with Jesus for most of his ministry. And this teaching, this sermon, this message is for the disciples of Jesus Christ. And a disciple is someone who has received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's not just a religious person. A disciple is a learner, a pupil, a student. It's someone who follows someone else's teaching. And I encourage you this morning, ask yourself, are you a student of Jesus Christ? There are many people in our nation that will claim to be Christians, whether it's athletes or artists, that they live a life of sin, they live a life of filth, and then out of nowhere they thank God for all of the blessings. Are they truly a student? Are they a pupil of the teachings of Jesus? The biblical definition goes even deeper. It's not only a person who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but it's someone who helps spread the teachings of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you helped spread and share the teachings of Jesus Christ? Because that's truly what it means to be a disciple. It's not just for us to hear it and keep it all to ourselves, but it's to hear it, believe it, and now share and spread the gospel. This Sermon on the Mount, it's not a checklist of disciplines for us to try to work towards. It's a list of attitudes that any son or daughter of the king ought to possess. You see, family, this is how we are to live. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and those that belong to this kingdom will live like this and will think like this. As believers, we do need to show great balance with the Sermon on the Mount because each of us should have a measure of these attributes and truths in our lives, but there's always more room to grow. Be very careful with the person who does not have any of these attributes demonstrated in their life and yet they call themselves a Christian or a disciple. And we should also be careful with the other end of the spectrum. Those that say they've mastered all of the Beatitudes, that they have no more room to grow. It's very dangerous territory. We could turn quickly to Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us the great balance that each of us should have. There's no doubt that Jesus saves us. He died for us while we were still dead in our sins. But he loves us too much to just leave us where he found us. And he challenges us to grow and to mature. Here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. 
And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the, same, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. Paul is saying he's been saved, but he has so much more to grow on. And he's pressing into that growth with Jesus Christ. We come back to Matthew chapter 5, and now we look at this first attitude or attribute that we should possess as believers. In verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, it means, oh, how happy. But it goes so much deeper than that. It's not just a momentary feeling or a surfacey feeling, but it's a joy that is deep inside each and every one of us. You see, happiness, it comes and goes. Maybe you got a new car, and you're happy. You have that new car smell. You rev up the engine, right? And you feel how great it is, how new it is. But then what happens when you get that first payment deducted from your bank account, right? That happiness is gone. You take it on a Sunday morning stroll, and you're excited. It's amazing. And then you park it at the public's parking lot, and you see a huge ding and scratch on the side. And the happiness is gone. Here's not just describing happiness. William Barclay says it describes that joy which has its secret in itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of this life. Perhaps you've met another believer going through the most difficult seasons of life. And yet they can possess the joy of the Lord. In the high highs and in the low lows. Charles Spurgeon mentions, Note also with delight that the blessings in every case are in the present tense. It's a happiness to be enjoyed now, to be delighted in today. It's not the blessed shall be, it's the blessed are. And there are nine blessings to start off with Jesus' sermon. And they don't make any sense in human or carnal or fleshly terms. Oh, how happy. Oh, how joyful. Oh, how joyful and happy with present enjoyment and delight are the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy and poor, if we're honest, are pretty strange in the same sentence. It's not very happy to be poor. There's not much enjoyment there. And especially when we're not talking about middle class being poor or low income being poor. Growing up in a Hispanic home, if you're poor for breakfast, you have arroz con huevo frito. That's rice with fried eggs. And you have that breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you have extra protein, you get rice with Vienna sausages. And that's what it means to be poor. Some of my friends from American homes, they grew up on bread and ketchup sandwiches. That, that's how they grew up. Others, they mentioned how Chef Boyardee was a highlight for dinner because you'd get carbs and protein in the same meal. This isn't the level of poverty that Jesus is speaking of. It's speaking of a level of poverty so bad that if you do not beg and someone does not answer your plead, you will surely die. And this mindset that Jesus gives us is so contrary to the mindset of this world. As believers, we need to constantly be praying Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Lord, help me to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. We can think of the great example of Jesus answering the disciples on their favorite topic. You know what the disciples' favorite topic was? 
themselves, like many of us here, right? Who's your favorite person on this earth? I think that guy in the mirror is pretty great, right? In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, Jesus is dealing with these disciples. They come to a house when they finally arrive at Capernaum. And Jesus, some of us, some of us parents have dealt with this. Jesus asked the disciples, hey, what was it that you were disputing among yourselves along the road? And all the disciples, they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is the mindset we need to have, letting go of this world and this world's standards and asking Jesus, our teacher and our Lord, what are your standards? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, it's not speaking about an outward position or a social class that you belong to. It's speaking about who we are in our deepest frame of mind. When you're all alone and you have free time, where does your mind go? That is truly who you are. David Brown says, those who in their deepest consciousness realize their entire need, that before God, I am void of everything. And we find this all over the Psalms. In Psalm 40, verse 17, the psalmist says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. In Psalm 69, verse 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. Psalm 112, verse 4, Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteousness. James puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We can turn to Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to look at two different churches very quickly here. And we'll see the way they see themselves versus the way that Jesus sees them. We'll see their self-evaluation versus the evaluation that Jesus gives them. And it's great for us this morning to cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, how do you evaluate me? How am I doing? How are we doing? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, here Jesus, he's speaking to the church in Smyrna, and he tells them, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. The church in Smyrna, they were poor, they were impoverished, but Jesus looks to them and says, you are rich. Now we look at chapter 3, and verse 16, we find the church of Laodicea, and they're a bit different than the church of Smyrna. In chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus tells them, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. These churches, their view of themselves was off of what Jesus saw. The church of Smyrna, they were impoverished, but he's telling them, you are rich. And this church of Laodicea, they thought they were rich and they were wealthy and they needed nothing. And yet Jesus says, you are as poor, blind, miserable, and naked. The Pharisees also had a wrong evaluation of who God came to save and who he loves to show himself strong on behalf of. In Matthew chapter 9, one of the Pharisees, they are dealing with Jesus and with his disciples. They see Jesus eating and the company of people Jesus is eating with. So they call one of his disciples in Matthew 9 verse 11 and they ask them, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? Then Jesus heard that and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who are you? Are you self-righteous? Do you think you're good enough for heaven? Do you think you've outdone the person next to you? Or do you realize, as Romans 3.10 tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. As Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, our first point of contact with God is our helplessness. We need to cry out and say, Lord, I am so lacking that if I do not beg you and if you do not hear my plea and save my life and save my situation, Lord, I will die spiritually for all of eternity. we got to cry out to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, he says, a ladder, if it's to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. Or feeble climbers will never be able to mount. It would have been a grievous discouragement to struggling faith if the first blessing had been given to the pure in heart. To that excellence, the young beginner makes no claim. While to poverty of spirit, he can reach without going beyond his line. We're all there at the first rung. Just some of us have accepted it and believe it. And there's others that are too prideful to see it. And if you have kids, you know what this is like. I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old at home. And if I don't want them messing with something, where do I put it? On the top shelf, right? Somehow they still manage and find a way to get up there, but we, we do our best. And Jesus, right, he put salvation all the way at the bottom. That all we have to do is cry out and plead. We have to see our weakness and our need for him and just cry out to him and ask him. God places the first steps towards the kingdom of heaven on the lowest shelf. So whoever is able to see just how sick, how poor, how blind, and how naked we are, and we beg and plead with Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven is yours. There's warnings all throughout Scripture if we have a prideful view of ourselves. In Job chapter 33, verse 27, Job, he has the right mindset. He says, Lord, I have sinned. I perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 puts it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we cry out to him, if we plead our need and our weaknesses to him, we're not going to be a second class citizen in heaven. There's no VIP section in heaven, right? All of us, we're going to be there. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You won't have to wait in purgatory. You won't have to work your way up to the top. The moment we cry out to the Lord and accept him as Lord and Savior of our life, we become sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We become heirs to the throne of God. Charles Spurgeon, he says, To the poor in spirit remains a boundless, endless, faultless kingdom, which renders them blessed in the esteem of God, who is overall blessed forever and ever. This isn't just the first step towards the kingdom of God on the bottom shelf. This is the foundation and our part in this relationship with God. If we do not possess this character trait of being poor in spirit, we will never be able to possess the other nine blesseds. It's not the self-righteous in spirit. It's not the proud in spirit. It is the poor in spirit that the kingdom of God belongs to. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 gives us a warning. Malachi, the Italian prophet in scripture, right? Malachi Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. I don't see this verse on many refrigerators or backgrounds of our phones, right? And it's a warning that if we are proud in heart, there is a day coming when all the proud in heart and all the wicked will be burning like stubble. James chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my, blessed is and my burden is light. Now in verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, this doesn't make sense in natural or human or carnal terms. Oh, how happy are those who are not happy. Oh, how happy are those who mourn. It's, it's completely strange. And what, who does this promise go to? Those who are mourning over a Super Bowl loss, right? Is it those who are mourning over their new car being scratched? Is it those who are mourning that they lost a huge fish right at the side of the boat? It's speaking of those who have the proper reaction towards our sin. Here Jesus is speaking to what is our mindset and reaction towards our sin. This second beatitude complements the first. The first one is our mindset and our view of who we are apart from Jesus. The second is our reaction towards this view of ourselves being so poor and needy spiritually. Isaiah 66 verse 2 tells us, Says the Lord, but on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. William Barclay tells us that this word in the Greek for mourn 
is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is the word which is used for mourning our own dead loved ones. That passionate lament that we have towards someone that we love that has gone from this life to the next. That mourning and weeping that floods over us in different seasons and in different days and in different waves. This is how our emotions should react when we view our sins and the wages of our sins. Those who attempt to cover up their sin will never be comforted. Those who make light of their own sin will never be comforted. Those who make little of their own sins will never be comforted. Those who make excuses for their sins or try to rationalize their sins or compare their sins to the sins of someone else will never be comforted. But those who mourn over their own sins, they will be comforted. We can look to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see how the church of Corinth first reacted to sin in their church compared to how they reacted in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 at the sin within their own church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we could turn there quickly if you would. First Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he tells them, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Oftentimes when we sin, we don't mourn about it. We're puffed up about it. We're proud of it. Each of us, we've been there in our marriages. You're in an argument, and a quarter of the way into the argument, you realize you're completely wrong, but it's too late to turn back. <laughs> and you just continue to double down on it, and you puff up, right? You've sinned, you've messed up, you know you're dead wrong, but your pride, your ego doesn't let go. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now look at the way that the church of Corinth reacts to their sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We can think of the differences between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas both sinned against Jesus Christ. They both sinned against him. Peter sinned. And he was sorrowful, he regretted, he wept, but he stayed in the fellowship of his brothers. And that godly sorrow produced repentance, and Jesus restored him in front of all of his brothers. Judas had sorrow, but instead of going to his brothers, he went to the Pharisees. And he tried to find and be consoled with the Pharisees away from his own brothers. And he just allowed his sorrow to lead him away from his family and isolate himself, and it led to his destruction. 
Family, may we have that sorrow, but let us allow it to produce repentance within us, that we'd bring it before the Lord, that we'd confess our sins to the Lord and to whoever we've sinned against, that we might be comforted. David Brown, he says, religion, according to the Bible, is neither a set of intellectual convictions nor a bundle of emotional feelings, but a compound of the both. The former giving birth to the latter. Thus closely do these first two beatitudes cohere. The mourners shall be comforted. And even now we receive beauty for ashes. We receive the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We sow in tears and yet we reap even today in joy. Still all present comfort, even the best is partial interrupted and short-lived but the days of our mourning shall soon be ended and then God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes then in the fullest sense shall the mourners be comforted that that's the joy of following Jesus not only are there blessings today in this life but there's going to be blessings for the rest of eternity the comfort promised to us is not just consolation given through words but consolation given by the presence of someone else. When we're going through difficulty and mourning, it is, it's a blessing to receive texts and phone calls of comfort, knowing that other people care about you and are wondering how you're doing. But how much more comfort, how much more refreshment do we receive when someone who we love and someone who understands us comes into our presence and just sits alongside of us in silence, mourning with us. It comforts us. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Jesus, he takes us from our sinful state, he saves us, and then he invites us to come into fellowship with him, and we get to sit in his presence and be comforted. Finally, verse 5, it tells us, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it's one thing to realize our spiritual poverty and then mourn over our sins and the wages demanded of them. Jesus, he's spoken of our reaction to how we have lived and how we've treated Jesus Christ. Now Jesus here in this third blessed is speaking to our reaction on how other people live and how other people treat us. That word meek means restraint and a powerful personality properly controlled with humility. Simply put, meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. A weak or indifferent and apathetic person, you don't have to do much to control them. Cubans will call someone that's just sitting there a saco de papa. That means a sack of potatoes, right? And I don't know how hard it is for you to control a sack of potatoes. You just throw it somewhere and it just sort of sits there. That, that's not meekness. We can think of the two greatest military leaders and warriors in the Bible. David and Moses. And would any of us say that these men were weak? I don't know how many, how many of you have ever killed a lion before. Not with a gun, not with a rifle, but with a sling, a knife, a dagger, we don't know. How about killing a bear, snatching a lamb out of the mouth of a wild animal? 
killing a giant, killing an Egyptian soldier, and then burying him in the sand. These men were the greatest warriors that Israel ever knew, and yet look how David deals with Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 10, David says, Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David had all the power to kill him. David had all the might and strength to kill him. David had all the reason to kill Saul. Saul broke up David's marriage. Saul broke up David's home. Saul destroyed David's job, his business, his home life. He had to leave and flee. And yet he humbled himself under the Lord and said, Lord, what is your will here? We could think of Moses and how he dealt with the Israelites. In Exodus 32 verse 9, God is having enough of the Israelites and the Lord tells Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation." God, he's telling Moses, Moses, these guys, they're just obnoxious. They're always whining. They're always murmuring. Moses, let's just wipe them out. We'll start a new nation. We'll call it Motown. And we'll start the Mosesites, right? And we'll put over everyone here. And we'll start a new nation with you. Does Moses say, yes, Lord, thank you. You finally heard my call, Lord. These people, all they do is murmur and complain. Who really loves onions and leeks that much, God? Let's just wipe them out. No, Moses, he pleads with the Lord. He tells him, Lord, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. In verse 32 of chapter 32 of Exodus, Moses says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Meekness is the biblical balance of anger and indifference. It's not being easily provoked, but it's also not just sitting around and doing nothing because of apathy. Psalm chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 put it this way. But I know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. There's a lot of wisdom there. When we get angry... When we get frustrated, instead of lashing out or sitting there stewing, so much wisdom to meditate within our heart. Maybe you go to your bed or to a quiet place and just be still before the Lord. The difficult thing with meekness is the only way we can demonstrate meekness is to be in a situation where anger and even vengeance would be fair. That's the hard thing about the fruit of the Spirit. We only put those on display when it's a spiritual response that's needed. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells the ladies that they would have the adornment of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. If there's any disciple that did not display meekness, it's Peter. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's cutting off ears. He's doing dumb things all the time. And yet as he grows and he's filled with the Spirit and he matures as a believer, he's telling others, put on meekness. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15 through 17, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts 
and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. When those of you go out later this afternoon to share the gospel with the neighbors, don't do it in a spirit of arrogance or a spirit of being smarter than the person or a spirit of looking down at the person. Do it with the spirit of meekness and godly fear. You see, in meekness, there's no room for bitterness. There's no room for a hunger for revenge. That power and ability is brought under the authority of God. Our rights, our privileges, and our desires, our strength is put to the side and we ask God, what is your will and desire in this situation? James chapter 3 verse 13 tells us, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have any bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. If you truly are maturing in Jesus Christ and you're a mature believer, you're going to have good conduct and you're going to have works that are done in meekness of wisdom. It's not the person that's arrogant or boasting about all they've done for Christ. It's not the person being boastful and saying, man, that ministry is kind of lacking, but if I get in there, watch what I'll do. That's not spiritual maturity. It is the one that is working in the meekness of wisdom. The meek man, the meek woman is able to deal with the pain and sin of this world while looking and remembering their own sin, their own spiritual poverty and all the pain they've brought upon other people. They take all of this pain and torment and they submit all of that to the Lord. A meek man, a meek woman, they have the fruit of the Spirit. We can think of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, how the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we have meekness, you're going to have long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. A meek person never feels superior to someone else. A meek person always is reminded of their sinful state. Our world says the loudest, the craziest, the one who shows the most brute force, those are the people that inherit this earth. But that's not what the creator and maker of this planet and of this universe says. We will not get the short end of the deal. Submit unto the Lord. The one who owns the universe tells us, oh, how happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I encourage you to consider the mindset of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How in Matthew 11, verse 29, the King James Version reads this way, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. To be meek, we have to be able to love our enemies, to pray for those who spitefully use us, 
And maybe you guys are great at that. I'm not so great at that. It's pretty difficult for me. But that's why we need to pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Transform me. Renew me. God, you got to do a miracle here. John Macduff, he says, be assured, no happiness is equal to that enjoyed by the meek Christian. He has within him a perpetual inner sunshine, a perennial wellspring of peace. He's never ruffled or fretted by real or imaginary injuries. He puts the best construction on motives and actions, and by a gentle answer to unmerited reproach, often disarms wrath. Again, the meek Christian, they don't take things that seriously. And how good it is to not be ruffled or fretted by real or imaginary injuries. Have you ever struggled by an imaginary injury? Right, you get mad at someone, you get angry, you think they're doing all this evil, they're lying to you, they're doing all these terrible things behind your back, you're about to lash out on them, and then they yell out, surprise, it's your birthday, right? <laughs> and the reason they weren't being honest with you is because they were planning something to bless you and to love you. If you're able to keep quiet, you don't look as stupid as you really are, right? <laughs> That's the blessings of being meek. You allow big things and little things to go by, and you don't take them that seriously. And oftentimes you have the power to have that soft answer that turns away wrath. David Guzegi says, Through the first three Beatitudes, we notice that the natural man finds no happiness or blessedness in spiritual poverty, mourning, or meekness. These are only blessings for the spiritual man, those who are new creatures in Jesus Christ. So may we ask Jesus to make us new creatures today. I'm often reminded that apart from him, I can do nothing. And perhaps it's the first time you've ever prayed that prayer this morning. It might even be the hundredth time you've prayed that prayer this morning. And throughout our journey with Jesus, as we grow and we mature, this process leads to sinning less and less, and yet repenting more and more. So may we cry out, Lord, please change my heart of stone and give me that heart of flesh. Jesus, please create in me a clean heart. Jesus, please renew my mind and renew my inner man today. That I would be reminded that I would be able to know just how spiritually poor I, tru I truly am. That I would mourn over my sins and that I would have that meek and gentle spirit. So Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. And Jesus, we thank you, Lord, how you always lead by example. All of these characteristics, Lord, all of these attributes, how you put them on display, living a perfect life, Lord. Reviled, and yet you reviled not in return, Lord. You were sinless, and yet you had to deal with all the evils and atrocities of other people. Lord, strengthen us, Lord. Help us to look like you and act like you, Lord. Help us to be conformed into your image, Jesus. And Lord, for anyone here who's truly been wronged, for anyone here who's truly been hurt, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen them to forgive, Lord. That you'd strengthen them to let go of that bitterness and resentment and that they would lay it at your feet, Lord. Lord, for any of us that we're still in our pride, we still think we're right, but God, we're dead right. I pray, Lord, you'd soften our hearts that we'd be able to see Lord, our sinful nature and just how many people we've hurt. So, Lord, we love you. 
We ask that you'd minister to our hearts, Lord, that truly it would be good soil that your seed would find this morning, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.